Welcome to The Thinking Traveller. My name is Stuart Barry. The role of the First Lady of the United States, that is, the wife of the President, is an undefined role. However, it can be hugely influential at home and abroad, not only in terms of fashion and style, but also sometimes a very activist role. Today, we are joined by Dr. Anna Leibovitch, who is explaining the role of the First Lady, the importance of their fashion, and what it can say about the President and of the United States. Anna has a BA and PhD in History from the University of Sydney, and her doctorate was the first academic history of America's preeminent fashion magazine, Vogue. She has presented at numerous conferences internationally, including meetings of the Association of Dress Historians in London and the Organisation of American Historians in New Orleans. She is currently at work on her first book on Vogue, which draws on previously unseen material from the Condé Nast archive in New York. Her research has also been published in leading academic journals, including the Journal of Women's History and Gender and History. Thank you for joining us, Anna. So what exactly is the First Lady of the United States? Is, is it some sort of official position? It's a great question because technically the First Lady is an entirely unofficial position. Um, so many people are really surprised to learn that actually the terms First Lady do not appear anywhere in the US Constitution, okay, which of course is very, very different to say the President of the United States, which is a very clearly and extensively defined role as the head of both the state and government within the US. That's very clearly defined within the US Constitution. So the First Lady position is not official. It is not an elected position. Overwhelmingly, however, it is sort of something that's sort of culturally grown over time in terms of expectations. So originally, the expectation of the First Lady was effectively to be the hostess of the then newly created White House, which of course was and remains the official residence of the sitting president throughout his presidency. So the primary function, certainly in the 19th century, was overwhelmingly the First Lady was expected to receive and entertain um, politicians and visiting dignitaries. And indeed, the, the term First Lady can be dated back to the very first US president. So it was first applied to Martha Washington, who was married to the first ever US president, who was, of course, the uh, famous George Washington. Now, intriguingly, throughout her lifetime, Martha Washington preferred what I think is the far more preferable terminology of Lady Washington, which I think is much more glamorous, but was actually referred to First Lady after her death. Um, and it sort of stuck in Washington circles as you move into the 1850s and then hit the mainstream press in the US in the 1870s, by which point it kind of became the commonly used term. So the term of First Lady is really unusual. It's undefined. It's more about social expectation and is, of course, usually fulfilled by the wife of the sitting US president. Intriguingly, though, 13 women who were not actually presidential wives have fulfilled the function of First Lady over the years. So they've stepped in for presidents that were bachelors or widowed um, and in certain unique cases, including, I believe, uh, Lincoln's wife, Mary Lincoln, she was incapacitated for a period uh, due to mental illness. Another female family member had to step in to the role. So I always think it's quite interesting. In the press in our lifetime, certainly, we're very used to visually seeing First Ladies compared to and meeting the late, great, 
Queen Elizabeth of England, but they're actually very different. Um, Queen Elizabeth, of course, was the head of state of the United Kingdom. You know, she's the head of a constitutional monarchy, incredibly carefully defined role with a lot of very technical you know, expectations. First Lady, by contrast, has no official power or role in the US government. So how has the expectations of the First Lady evolved over time? The short answer is they have evolved significantly. The longer answer, which always, you know, contains more interesting anecdotes, is that what we've seen, particularly as you move into the 20th century, the role has evolved beyond that initial, you know, sort of caretaker role, if you like, of being the White House hostess. So effectively organising and attending official political functions of the state with and for the president. Now, without question, that still remains a core expectation right, of any first lady. But certainly as you move into the 20th century, the role of first lady has really grown and expanded beyond that. So the first lady, I think, today we see has become much more of an independent actor in her own right. So she's not just sort of the woman behind the man anymore. And this sort of, it's a shift that occurs slowly uh, and I think you can really date it back to the 1920s when suddenly it became more common for first ladies to identify, adopt and promote uh, particular causes, usually of an apolitical nature with sort of a bipartisan, broad-based appeal. And that became a new expectation that first ladies would effectively use their position right, to do some kind of greater good. So, you know, in recent living memory, I'm sure we all remember Nancy Reagan's uh, infamous Just Say No to Drugs campaign. That was sort of her cause that she unfortunately recruited a young drug-dependent Drew Barrymore at the time to support. Um, More recently, you might remember Michelle Obama chose, uh, while she was first lady, to tackle the issue of childhood obesity and planted an edible organic veggie garden in the White House to sort of raise the profile of that particular cause. That said, from particularly after World War II onwards, you start to see a trend where some first ladies start to really push for becoming real political players in their own right. Now, to a degree, I think you could argue, and certainly a lot of American historians would, that first ladies are innately political players in their own right anyway, right? They are, of course, intimate political advisors to the president, right? They are, they're often in many cases, particularly if it's a happy marriage, their closest confidant and companion to the president, right? So they do have a certain amount of political sway as a result of that. But what you do see sort of from the 1950s onwards, certain first ladies take that political role a step further and start to seek out political office in their own right. Notably, the longest ever serving first lady, which was Eleanor Roosevelt, married to the late great FDR. After FDR suddenly died in 1945, she actually sought out her own political office and became an ambassador for the US to the UN. Again, recent living memory, of course, we can all recall Hillary Clinton starts out as First Lady, sought out political office first as a senator and then as president herself. Now, as you see that shift start to happen with First Ladies becoming more independent, active players, if you like, that shift is very much reflected in the role of First Lady becoming more formalised. So from the 1900s onwards, the First Lady is given her own federally funded 
independent staff. Now, that's a very significant thing, right? This isn't something that the First Ladies or the Presidents are paying for privately. That is federally funded taxpayer dollars used to fund the First Lady's own staff who are directly accountable to the First Lady, not to the President. And that clear independence, if you like, of the First Lady's staff and role and agency was very clearly signified in the 1970s when what became called the Office of the First Lady of the United States was moved into its own wing, the East Wing of the White House, separate from the President's staff. Now, that said, in terms of the evolution of, you know, the role of First Lady in, you know, United States culture, most historians would agree that it was really Jacqueline Kennedy and her very famous stint as First Lady, which was comparatively quite short from 1961 to 1963, that she really transformed the role and it was her that set the template for expectations for what the sort of modern First Lady should be and should do. And she did this in a number of different arenas, which I'll run through very briefly. The first, and I think in some ways the most important, was that she was the first ever presidential wife to hire her own press secretary. So she was going to manage her own PR narrative, if you like. Really significant. And again, not surprising. People forget Jackie Kennedy before she married JFK was actually a journalist herself. Very, very media savvy, very media astute. And moreover, she used the press secretary to full effect. So her sort of chosen cause or project throughout her term as First Lady was a very extensive restoration of what was by that point a quite decrepit White House. Now, she used that press secretary to leverage a deal, if you like, with the American network CBS, and she did a fantastically um, well-received and widely viewed sort of live tour on network television of her recently renovated White House. Now, that show was watched by over 80 million Americans and was really key in cementing her appeal. And incidentally, one of the few things that's uh, known about Jackie Kennedy, she actually she's the only First Lady to have received an Emmy, and she received it for that TV show. The third kind of inroads I think that Jackie Kennedy made, if you like, in terms of expectations of the First Lady position, she also demonstrated the appeal and success of the First Lady ability to perform in diplomatic tours on her own without the President, right? So she undertook many trips with JFK overseas for diplomatic purposes. But she actually, due to, well, he was then, just thinking John Kenneth Galbraith, um, now a very famous economic historian, at the time in 1962, he was actually an ambassador for the JFK administration and he encouraged her to undertake her own independent trip to India and Pakistan, which she did and she did in, to enormous success and acclaim. And thereafter, the idea which for her at the time was breaking entirely new ground and was considered very controversial. But the idea that a first lady can, you know, independently travel abroad and represent and so, you know, sort of fly the flag, if you like, on behalf of the president, diplomatically speaking, was a really major departure. Last but not least, though, of course, right, if we talk about first ladies, you automatically think about fashion. And I think that connection 
right, can really be traced back to Jacqueline Kennedy. You know, as First Lady, Jacqueline Kennedy quickly emerged as a major style icon admired not just within America but also internationally, right, and for good reason. Um, She was known and remains incredibly well-known and well-loved for her, you know, sort of very clean, classy and modern style. And I do think she set that kind of new bar for expectation that the First Lady should also be you know, not just a global fashion leader, but sort of a superstar, if you like, which is a very high bar, I have to say, to meet. So was Jackie Kennedy always acclaimed as a stylistic leader as First Lady? The surprising answer to that question is no, she wasn't. Um, She actually had a very rocky start with the American electorate, and this was due to her love of very elite, expensive fashion. Jackie Kennedy as was in keeping with many women of her class and background, preferred French haute couture, particularly the work of Coco Chanel, Christabel Balenciaga, who was a famous um, Spanish-born but Parisian-based couturier in the 1950s, as well as uh, Hubert de Givenchy. And again, as I said, all that was very much the wardrobe of someone of her background. Jackie Kennedy was famously born into a socially very well-connected East Coast family and then proceeded to marry into the mega wealthy Kennedy clan. So in many ways, she was wearing, you know, the French haute couture that was expected for someone of her class and social position. The problem came during JFK's presidential campaign in 1960, when they started campaigning, particularly in sort of Midwestern electorates, right? where you wearing $30,000 suits doesn't necessarily wash that well, particularly recalling that JFK was a Democrat. He wasn't a Republican. So there was a perceived disjuncture between his more inclusive liberal political platform that he was clearly campaigning on and her very elite attire. And, the you know, the criticism in the press at the time really started to mount. So once JFK was elected, Jackie Kennedy, being a very astute player, knew she had a problem. So she actually wrote privately to the then fashion editor of Harper's Bazaar magazine, Diana Vreeland, to basically ask, look, what should I do? Should I look into some suitable American designers? And Diana Vreeland said, absolutely, you should. We've got to find you someone who can basically replicate the Paris look that you love and that everyone does think is so chic, but is still being produced by, you know, a local homegrown American designer. So ultimately, Jackie Kennedy, if you like, got around the American equivalent of what here in Australia we would call the pub test (laughs) as first lady by commissioning the American fashion designer Oleg Cassini to create basically her entire wardrobe throughout her three years as first lady. So from 1961 to 1963, he dressed her for basically all of her iconic fashion moments as First Lady. And this, of course, included her very chic inauguration day coat with a little sort of fur muff, um, as well as her very, very famous inaugural gala gown. That said, Jackie Kennedy's love of French couture, it never really wavered. So given any kind of remotely plausible excuse, even while she was First Lady, she would sort of lapse back into wearing Uh, the clothes. So, for example, when she was on an official state visit with JFK uh, in 1962, they went to an official dinner in Versailles and she, of course, immediately elected to wear a Givenchy ball gown. And one of the more infamous examples of her love of Francophilia is actually the, the day that JFK was assassinated. You may recall she was actually wearing a navy and pink 
Chanel suit because by that point he was campaigning, of course, for his second term as president and she had effectively decided that she was going to go revert back to wearing what she wanted to wear um, if she was going to stay in the political game. Okay, so has his expectation that the First Lady should patriotically wear American clothes, has that endured for First Lady since Jackie Kennedy? Overwhelmingly, the answer to that question, I think, is yes, with a few exceptions, which I I might mention in a minute. But I do think the expectation that the First Lady should use her position to illustrate on a global scale and stage the breadth and depth and strength right, of American fashion and style. That is still very much seen as, you know, a clear patriotic duty. And you can see clear comparisons. Kate Middleton, of course, is expected to do the same thing for British design and British fashion. So you do overwhelmingly see, you know, there is a real bipartisan appeal for a lot of First Ladies, irrespective of whether they're a Republican First Lady or a Democrat first lady, but many do seek out and work with um, the late great American designer Oscar de la Renta. Um, He was actually born, interestingly, in the Dominican Republic, but worked out of New York City, but he was certainly favoured by both of the Bush wives as first lady, um, as well as Hillary Clinton while she was first lady. Many first ladies also favoured and worked with Carolina Herrera, Um, another very famous American designer based in New York City, intriguingly also born um, south of the, you know, the American, North American border. She was born in Venezuela um, but went on to work out of New York City. Certainly I think you can see a very clear orientation with Republican first ladies, so so women who are married to Republican presidents. They, I do think, are under even more pressure, if you like, to sort of um, showcase Americana and American fashion. Nancy Reagan, the Reagan White House was very divisive politically, but she was, to her credit, widely acclaimed for her style as First Lady and for good reason. Um, People forget Nancy Reagan was actually a Hollywood star. She was under contract with MGM in the 1950s. That's indeed where she met Ronald Reagan. So she, she knew kind of how to dress for the cameras and for the stage, of course, was well known for her love of Reagan red. She wore a lot of a particularly distinctive hue of red, quoted as saying she felt that particular colour was a picker-upper, which is a very Nancy Reagan wholesome type quote. But she in particular wore a lot of American designers, including Bill Blass, Jeffrey Bean, Oscar de la Renta. That said, the big exception to that rule is, of course, Melania Trump, who overwhelmingly, as First Lady, favoured a really eclectic array of non-American elite fashion designers. Intriguingly, she didn't start out that way. I did note for the very famous inauguration ceremony, which, of course, always happens in freezing cold Washington, D.C. weather in January, she wore a very sort of safe outfit, I thought. It was a sky blue cashmere suit and jacket, which was very clearly imitative of Jackie Kennedy's signature stylist, First Lady. She even had the sort of three-quarter length gloves. And tellingly, this outfit was also very, you know, classically American. It was designed by the very American designer, Ralph Lauren. But that said, after that, Melania very much deviated from the expectation. She wore as First Lady a lot of Italian elite fashion, a lot of Gucci, Valentino, and French haute couture as well. She really loves Chanel. Um, There's the famous shot of her and Trump getting on the helicopter on the last day of his presidency, and she's in a very chic, uh, very expensive black Chanel suit. So she is very much the exception to that rule. 
what are the rules for stylistically succeeding as a first lady? You know, what does one need to do or not to do? Oh, it's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Look, in my humble opinion, I think the real golden rule is that the first lady's dress must mirror and reflect the values of her husband's administration, right? Or to put it in other words, I think there needs to be a very clear consistency, unity and synchronicity between the first lady's aesthetic and her husband's perceived political position. And so anytime there's a real disconnect in that regard, right, that's when you see it become really problematic for the American public. And, again, I think we've got to come back to why is that, right? In some ways it's not that surprising. The American people do not elect a first lady, right? She is a package deal with the president. So it's not that surprising, therefore, that there's an expectation, right, that there should be a clear sort of symmetry or allegiance between the two. And I think there's numerous examples you can move through with first ladies and their fashion to kind of support that point. So the case of Jackie Kennedy that I was just talking about, right, you know, as a presidential candidate's wife, very sharply criticised for her love of Parisian haute couture, again, because it was entirely at odds with her husband's progressive, inclusive democratic politics. And if you read the newspaper coverage from the time, it's savage for that very reason, right? How can he be talking about the price of milk, which is one of the things he was campaigning on? Um, again, inflation, it's not a new story, right? But at the same time, the wife standing next to him is wearing a $30,000 suit. What's really intriguing, though, is by contrast, right, I was just talking about Melania Trump and her attire as first lady, which in many ways I think was even more elitist than that of Jackie Kennedy's. Throughout the her, her term as first lady, she wore $1,500 Louboutin shoes that were sky high, 13 inch. And she walked around carrying like a huge collection of $100,000 ostrich Hermes Birkin bags. By contrast, that seemed to get a lot less criticism, which is quite intriguing, right? Why could she kind of get away with it? Melania Trump, I think, could get away with it because in many ways, it very much mirrored that elitist hyper-capitalist politics of her husband, right? That's kind of what Donald Trump campaigned on. He was loudly and proudly a fully, you know, card-carrying member of the one percenters. And that was kind of his argument, that you should vote for me because I know how to succeed in the American corporate private business world. And so, you know, Melania Trump's clothes were a clear, you know, reflection or signposting of that very Darwinian ethos. So whilst not everyone liked it with Melania Trump, it did attract far less commentary than you might have expected. And by and large, I do think the American public just sort of accepted it as part of, you know, the Trump phenomenon, um, for want of a better word. That said, at the other end of the political spectrum, right, her predecessor, Michelle Obama, and her attire as first lady was very widely admired, again, for its ability to, you know, sort of beautifully reflect and distill a number of the values of the um, Obama presidential administration. Firstly, you know, her Michelle Obama famously mixed what's known as high or low fashion. So she took a lot of designer pieces, very elite, expensive pieces, um, but she would wear them and mix them with, you know, very inexpensive pieces from Target and J. Crew. And that was widely applauded, not just in the fashion press, but the national press. And I think, again, because it mirrored that sort of inclusive, non-elitist values of the Barack 
you know, Obama administration. Similarly, Michelle Obama's decision to support and favour up-and-coming designers over established ones like Oscar de la Renta, like Carolina Herrera, was also seen as very in keeping with the sort of disruptive or meritocratic approach of the Obama presidency. So a great example of this is Michelle Obama was very heavily applauded for her choice of dress when it came to her inaugural ball gown, which you um, I'll talk about a bit later, but first ladies always wear on the evening of their husband's inauguration. And she chose to uh, wear on, you know, both inauguration days for her husband's first administration and second ball gowns by Jason Wu, who was an incredibly unknown Taiwanese-Canadian designer. Um, And that was a very big gamble and risk on Michelle Obama's part. But again, was very much seen as that's very in keeping with the Obamas, right, and their approach. They're they're very much looking at, well, who has the talent rather than the name. And lastly, as befitting, you know, as of the first African-American president and first lady in American history, you know, she also was very smart in um, at key moments wearing and spotlighting a number of African designers and wearing their designs very prominently. So when you take all of those things together, I do think those sorts of sartorial choices that Michelle Obama made, which philosophically dovetailed really beautifully with the Obama administration, do not entirely but do at least partially help explain why she was sort of so accepted by the American people. How different? are the stylistic expectations for a first lady versus the president they are married to? Hugely divergent. (laughs) That famous gender double standard, right, Um, never more um, prevalent than when it comes to, you know, how much commentary tire of the president attracts as opposed to that of the first lady. And to that end, I mean, I think there's a really fabulous anecdote that illustrates this. In 2017, the former first lady, Michelle Obama, actually did an interview about something else. And somehow it came up that Barack Obama had actually worn the exact same tuxedo and dress shoes to every single formal event for the eight years, the two terms that he was president, right? And nobody noticed a thing, exactly the same suit. And, of course, this is by contrast with the, you know, I don't know how much ink was expended on, you know, discussing the intricacies of every single thing, you know, the jewellery, the bag, the shoes, the dress that um, Michelle Obama wore at each of these official events. Um, And so it's quite interesting. Michelle Obama in the interview sounded quite annoyed about it because her husband would always be ready in 10 minutes and say, why aren't you? good to go. And he was very proud of his ability to kind of get away with it. But certainly there is a huge double standard, I think, when it comes to the clothing and the style of the First Lady versus the President. And what the First Lady wears actually be political? Absolutely. And I think that double standard, right, in some ways you can turn that back on its head when it comes to how much attention is paid to what the First Lady versus President wears. You know, the First Lady in that sense, that amount of attention on what she is wearing can be used to a First Lady's advantage. And I think of all the First Ladies, I think Jackie Kennedy can really be credited with harnessing that ability through what has become known as the subtle and quite difficult art of fashion diplomacy. And this is a terminology that's used in sort of fashion history circles. So what's fashion diplomacy? Fashion diplomacy basically is a kind of soft politics whereby clothing is used 
almost like a sartorial language to achieve very specific outcomes in delicate situations, particularly diplomatic situations. So Jackie Kennedy mastered this in numerous sort of situations as First Lady. A very famous example at the time is when she accompanied JFK in an official capacity to Vienna in 1961. And the couple went there basically for very tense, high-profile, sensitive talks between JFK and the then Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. And that was the first time they had ever met after JFK had become president. Now, again, we've got to remember 1961, this is when Cold War tensions were running incredibly high. And by all accounts, when they met and had their talks during the day, they did not go well at all. Khrushchev, by all accounts, bullied the much younger Kennedy and felt that he was young, inexperienced, and basically something of a spoiled brat whose father had bought him the presidency. So it was considered a complete Waterloo diplomatically speaking. What's really intriguing, though, is when you then cut to the evening reception, there was a ball kind of held that evening where the wives and the diplomats were invited. And Jackie Kennedy as First Lady at the last minute opted to wear a dress, again, designed very carefully by Oleg Cassini, but it was a pink, quite simple, um, very fitted sheath dress, very modern progressive silhouette, relatively simple except for the fact that it was embellished head to toe with sequins and it was considered the ideal kind of hybrid if you like between that western glamour um, but also a very simple modern youthful silhouette and there are fantastic images from this diplomatic reception of her standing right next to Khrushchev's wife Mrs Khrushchev who was wearing a very fusty you know embellished it's almost like a doily (laughs) And the comparison was incredibly unfavourable, right? And the effect of, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy's choice of dress in this particular instance was twofold. Khrushchev, for his part, was very clearly bowled over by the appearance of Jacqueline Kennedy. He was quoted over and overheard by the press who were there as saying, oh, she's beautiful and isn't her dress beautiful? And he immediately rushed up to shake her hand and meet her. And it's said that his sort of almost crush on Jacqueline Kennedy effectively for the next day had restored diplomatic relations between the president and the premier. She sort of acted almost as a broker, if you like, in bringing the two back together. But secondarily, right, this whole thing played out in the glare of the world's media. And as I said, there are numerous images that all ran on the front pages of the New York Times, Washington Post, and right around the world. And it very clearly and visually communicated, you know, the dominance of American culture and style over that of the Soviets. And again, that's no small feat in the context of a Cold War that's not just being fought out militarily, but increasingly, you know, over cultural superiority. So that kind of, you know, that's a very specific example. Jacqueline Kennedy, she did this again and again and again in numerous different events and places right around the world as First Lady. That kind of very astute use of sartorial culture, if you like, um, I think you you often see many other First Ladies attempt to replicate it, particularly when it comes to those really high-profile official international visits whilst they are sort of in office. And Michelle Obama, in my opinion, she really excelled at that particular art. And it's a very, very fine art because the stakes are very high. As we know, those big moments when, you know, the new First Lady meets Queen Elizabeth or, you know, whoever it is, right, the whole world is watching. 
when those events happen. It plays out in the news right around the world. So the clothes that the First Lady wears in those moments, they are very carefully chosen and always with a very extensive team of stylists and advisors. What is the most important sartorial moment for a First Lady? Without question, I think that is her inaugural ball gown, which I mentioned briefly a little bit earlier. So just for a little bit of background on that. So on the day that the president is inaugurated into office, so that's that moment, you know, when they stand out in the freezing cold and he swears on the Bible. On that day, the first lady usually wears some sort of dress and jacket to the ceremony. Okay. And again, usually it's midwinter, so they do need to rug up. That said, on the evening of the inauguration, throughout Washington, D.C., a number of inaugural balls are held. And these are invitation-only black tie events. Um, And these are effectively held in honour of the new president and to celebrate the new president. And the president and his wife are expected to attend, you know, the vast majority of these balls. So the ball gown that the, the First Lady wears to these balls is immensely important, okay, for a number of different reasons. The first public formal event as First Lady, right? So therefore it's a very clear sort of stylistic statement of her orientation for the years to come in office. And remember, right, First Lady is an unusual position. I don't think there are many other jobs or roles in the world where you will wear that many ball gowns and attend that many formal receptions, okay? Um, It's a big part of the requirement of the role. So it's sort of the litmus test. How is this first lady going to scrub up? Of course, there's also a big sort of fairy tale element to it, right? There's this sort of Cinderella moment of the first lady, of course, by this point has been installed in the White House after the ceremony. And that's where they emerge from before they go to the ball. So there's that moment of, you know, them being whisked off to these balls and they famously the president and first lady have their first dance on the dance floor of usually the first ball again that's another image that is always beamed right around the world so again it's a certain you know romance to it but in my opinion I think it's the ball gown is so important for the first lady because posterity is involved okay so it has now become custom for the first lady to gift their inauguration ball gown to the National Museum of American History, which is one of the Smithsonian's in Washington, D.C. And many of them, so I highly, if you're interested in First Ladies in Fashion, that is the mecca for you. They have them all on display um, in a particular wing of the museum. And so I think as a result, the inaugural ball gown, because there is this extensive collection of them, it's a very unique form of material culture that kind of tracks and I think in some ways has come to define how that role, that very unique, ill-defined role of First Lady has shifted and evolved over time in American culture. The obvious question at the Mm -hmm. end, in 2016, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, (laughs) what would we be talking about when it comes to William Jefferson Clinton? That's such a great question, right? It's that sliding doors moment. Well, I mean, we were talking about it a little bit earlier. So it has been established that the terminology for the first male equivalent, like the first male spouse of a female president, they now believe it will be, they will be the first gentleman. 
um, there was some debate. I do recall that distinctively in the New York Times when Hillary Clinton was campaigning. What will we refer to Bill Clinton as if she's successful? I believe he did come out in an interview and say that he would, because he had been a president, he has the right to always be referred to throughout his life as Mr. President. And I believe that would have been his preference anyway. But to your original question, would he have attracted as much attention in his dress as a first lady? I think absolutely for the first couple of occasions he would have because there would have been that novelty effect, right? Like what does the first gentleman slash Mr. President wear in contrast with his first lady? But I think it would have worn off very quickly. I mean, ultimately, it's pretty straightforward for a guy, isn't it, right? In most situations, in formal occasions, it's it's the Barack Obama thing. You wear your tux, the same tux he's probably had since he was president back in, in the 90s. He would have dusted that off and worn that to the formal diplomatic balls and events. And then for the daytime events, he's got his, his trusty old blue blazer again from the 90s, right? <laughs> I seem to remember hearing uh, Barack Obama only had two colours of suits, a grey and a navy blue. And he always said, "It just I didn't have time to think about, worry about what suit I was going to wear. It's just yeah. the choice of one or the other. Yeah. Again, it's that double standard of a man's not expected to be a fashion item, but the woman yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, no. And Barack Obama was very interesting. So, yeah, he did do an interview. I think it was with the New York Times where they asked him about his dress. And he said that. He basically subscribed to the Steve Jobs philosophy of minimising how many decisions he needed to make in any one day, which... To be fair, when you're president, you do have to make (laughs) enough other decisions. So there are priorities. But that said, Barack Obama is really interesting. I don't know if you recall, but I think it was sort of midway through his second term as president, he did wear a tan suit to one meeting in the White House. And the meltdown was phenomenal. Washington, D.C. just went into a complete tailspin about, you know, is it a a code? Again, it's that diplomatic dressing. Why all of a sudden has he deviated by wearing a tan suit? And I do, you know, they dug up all the archival images. Ronald Reagan had worn tan suits and it wasn't an issue, but it was because Barack Obama had been so restrictive, it was considered this massive deal. Ultimately, everyone sort of was a bit embarrassed about it after a few days. But, no, it's, it's a great question. But, yeah, ultimately I think there'd be a novelty factor for two weeks with the, you know, the first ever, but ultimately it's going to be a suit, right? For men, there's not, unfortunately, the the range of options, um, for better or worse. And with the role of the first lady, would it be correct in very superficially saying that the Democratic president's wives tend to be more activist and have movements or ideas that they want to pursue, whereas the Republican president's wives tend to be more demure housewife-type conservative roles? Oh, that's another really tricky question. Uh, I want to say yes, and in my mind I'm running through for exceptions. I mean, certainly, yeah, the examples I've given conform pretty neatly to that stereotype, right? Eleanor Roosevelt was considered the really radical first lady. She was, you know, Democrat. Hillary Clinton, of course, Democrat. That said, I don't think, I think Nancy Reagan, you know, and the Reagan presidency in many ways was sort of as conservative as you can get. I don't think she's been given enough credit as a a force in her own right. So I don't know if you recall a few years ago, there was quite the furor that came out when the Reagan's son released his autobiography and he did basically insinuate that whilst 
in the last few years of office, Reagan's Alzheimer's had already set in and that Nancy Reagan was kind of controlling. You know, she was sort of, while he was asleep at the wheel, she was the one actually running things. I've since seen that in a few things that I've read of credibility corroborated. And I do think Nancy Reagan has been underestimated. I don't think she was, she appeared to, because she was so tiny, right, tiny and diminutive and glamorous. But I think she had a real iron will and she was a lot more activist, to use your terminology, than people have given her credit for. Certainly in terms of a lot of the foreign policy decisions of the Reagan presidency, I believe she was a real mover and shaker. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there was no question after the Reagan presidency, she was going to go out like Eleanor Roosevelt and take on her own ambassadorial role or run for Senate or anything like that. So broadly speaking, yes, I do think that is true. And certainly Melania Trump, she was, (laughs) I think she was dragged to Washington DC kicking and screaming in the first place. So she was never going to stay any longer than she had to. I think the phrase is the classic handbag. (laughs) She was... Yes. Well, I'm sure you heard that fantastic story. Um, One of the reasons, because she took a long time to move to the White House. Trump was installed. He'd been inaugurated. She was still back in New York City. And one of the reasons she stalled, apparently, was because she was negotiating better terms on the prenup. (laughs) She was holding out, (laughs) which I've always thought was a pretty good story. It's great. Anna, thank you so very much for explaining what is an amazing role that is so preeminent in our lives. We greatly appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure, as always. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, brought to you by Academy Travel, a leader in small group cultural tours. Visit our website at academytravel.com.au to access blog articles or Join our online program of lectures and short courses brought to you by experts around the world.